So the other day, uh, Patrick and Christina were in my car, and we were headed to meet some other people at a place that was unfamiliar to all three of us. And so I put the, the address and my GPS in the car. Uh, and once you hit the start button on that, it gives you the option to share your ETA with somebody. And so when you hit the share button, your contacts list pops up on the screen in the car. And then you just hit the contact, and then it automatically sends your ETA to the people that you're meeting. Patrick made the comment that it would be super helpful to have that feature when they're coming back from a a youth retreat or going to a youth retreat or any kind of an event, just to kind of have the car automatically send a text message to all of the parents with with our ETA. Because that's just what we do, right? Parents drop their kids off here at church for a retreat and they'll get notified when the kids arrive at camp safely and they'll get notified when we leave the camp and so that parents know that the kids are okay and then they know when to come to church to pick them up, all that good stuff. Which caused me to ask Patrick, what the heck did we do earlier on in youth ministry? <laughs> we had to think back a little bit. So uh, Patrick and I were both youth pastors 20 years ago and so we started talking about how we'd just tell parents that we'd be back <laughs> Sunday. Then <laughs> off we would go. The parents wouldn't hear one word from me or from their kids until we pulled back into the church parking lot three days later, hopefully around the time that we said we would be home. Or even worse yet, when I was in youth group as a high school student, we'd hop in a van and drive to Virginia or Mexico for a mission trip, and our parents wouldn't know if we were dead or alive until we came home a week later. (laughs) Can you imagine that today? That wouldn't fly. One of the interesting things that has happened over the course of my own lifetime is that the more we have learned, the more we think we should know. And here's what I mean by that. Right, wrong, or indifferent, there was a day when parents weren't necessarily expected to know their kid's exact location every second of the day. And so they didn't fill their minds with that. When I was growing up, we were a little bit of a feral generation, let's be honest, but when I was growing up, we would leave after breakfast, and we wouldn't come back until dinner or until the streetlights came on, right? And nobody had any idea what we were doing in between. Now, again, I'm not necessarily saying that was a good idea. It didn't end well for all of us, but it was the way that it was. But I remember my very first friend that ever got a pager. We were in high school, and his name was Peter, And we would be hanging out somewhere, and Peter's pager would go off, and 99.9% of the time, it was Peter's mom, (laughs) wanting to know where he was or wanting Peter to come home. Why? Because now that Peter had a pager, she could know those things. At one point in my life, we would ask questions with no way of getting any answers, and so we would just wonder, or we would ask an adult who would pretend like they knew the answer, and then we would believe whatever they told us. But then the world changed, and everybody got computers, and we could look up all kinds of things all on our own. And then when I was in college, everybody got cell phones. And because everybody could be gotten a hold of at any time, we started expecting people to be far more available than they ever used to be. And then in my early 20s, we got smartphones, and we had the answer to all of our questions in the palm of our hands. And we had access to everyone 24 hours a day. And then Facebook came out in my mid-20s. And we moved from being able to get a hold of people 24 hours a day to now having glimpses into their thoughts and their whereabouts and their lives all of the time. 
And so the more we knew, the more we were expected to know. And the more knowledgeable we became about things like the human body or medicine or science or weather or space or technology, the more we knew about those things, the greater the pressure became to know more things. And so just in my lifetime, we became a culture where accessibility and knowledge of all things has now become the expectation. Now, that's a wonderful thing in many ways. Imagination and invention are beautiful things. And research and development have saved lives. And learning and education are the foundation of our society. And the more we learned things, the more we learned to fix things. And the more we learned to fix things, the more pressure we felt to fix things. Which leads us to this morning, week two of our Lenten series, 40 Days of Decrease. Now, if you weren't here last week, we are in this season called Lent, which observes the 40 days between Ash Wednesday and Easter Sunday. And last week, we talked about all the things that many of us grew up uh, giving up during Lent, which was really just primarily chocolate. <laughs> and how, uh, how we might now invest in, uh, in this season a little more intentionally by giving up those things that tend to get in the way of our relationship with Jesus. Last week, we talked about decreasing regret. And so this morning, we're taking a look at what it might look like for us to decrease our need to fix everything. Now, some of you hear that and you think, oh, that's not my issue, that's his issue. But I want to encourage you to consider the possibility this morning that our need to fix things is a somewhat universal experience, particularly in our culture. I was chatting with somebody from church the other day who told me that they really loved the show How, is, How It's Made. For those of you who have never seen it, it's just as it sounds. It's a show that walks you through the manufacturing process of all, all kinds of things, from contact lenses to jeans, from helicopters to cereal. It's a really fascinating show. It's fun. It's fun for us to have an understanding of how things are made, right? We like to be in the know, we watch DIY shows because we'd like to think that if we knew how to do that stuff, that we can and would do those things in our own homes, right? That rarely works out, but that's the idea. We watch things like true crime shows. Actually, I don't know why we watch true crime shows. I don't watch that stuff, but I suspect that we watch true crime shows because there's intrigue, either in trying to understand what the person was thinking or in trying to understand the process of how crimes are solved. I don't really know. Somebody can explain that to me later. But point being, we like to understand things, which leads us to our text for this morning, which I find so fascinating because this text was obviously written thousands of years before we had the depth of understanding about ourselves and our world that we have today. Now, it's not the passage that's in the bulletin, because like I do periodically, I changed my mind after the bulletin was printed. <laughs> but it's probably an incredibly, incredibly familiar passage to you nonetheless, even if you aren't really uh, in church very often. This is one of those things that's like crocheted on pillows or painted all over signs and Hobby Lobby, things like that. So we're gonna look at Proverbs 3. There are Bibles in front of you. It'll be up on the screen or you're welcome just to listen along. Proverbs 3, starting at verse five. Trust in the Lord, with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him, and he will make your paths straight. 
Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. So the book of Proverbs is largely attributed to a man named Solomon. Now, Solomon was an incredibly great king. And when God asked Solomon for anything in all the world that he wanted, what Solomon said that he wanted was wisdom. And so Solomon was known as the wisest man in the ancient world. Now, I know that we love to treat the book of Proverbs like a pile of fortune cookies, but it is much more than that. This whole book of Proverbs is dedicated to helping people explore how to live well in God's world. It has so much to offer us about how we engage the world and how we engage with each other in the ways that God created us to. Now, Proverbs is not the same as biblical law. Law was like, do this, don't do this. That's biblical law. Biblical wisdom is this is how God says that we can best live the life that he created us to live. Wisdom literature is different than all of the other literary genres in the Bible, and it has a lot to teach us. Wisdom is beautiful, and it's valuable, and it would serve us well in this world to seek God's wisdom above most other things in this life. So this passage in Proverbs 3 that we like to stitch on pillows is much more substantial than it appears at first glance. It comes from a section in Proverbs where a father is talking to his son, and the whole section is about what it means to trust in God. Now Solomon has already experienced for himself that God is worthy of our trust, and he knew that it was human nature to want to trust in something or to want to trust in someone, even if that someone is our own self. And so Solomon says that the best way to live in God's world is to trust God with our whole heart and to not lean on our own understanding. Now, I want you to stop and think about how profound a thought that is, given what we said earlier about both our culture and human nature, both of which seeks to know all the things. We love to lean on our own understanding. In fact, leaning on our own understanding is the only thing that many of us are comfortable with. And leaning on our own understanding is what gets so many of us in trouble in so many different ways, including our need to fix everything and everyone around us. Now, some of you here this morning know full well that you do this. Others of you are maybe not as aware of your propensity to try to fix things or fix people. Just to be very clear, I'm not talking about those of you who are handy and can actually fix real things, like cars and (laughs) holes in walls and leaky pipes. Grateful for you. Please keep doing that. This is not what I'm talking about. (laughs) I'm talking about our need to fix other other situations and and other people or even our own situations or our own lives. My guess is that we could probably spend the whole rest of the day here in this room just listening from people who have stories about somebody who tried to fix something in your life that you were not asking them to fix or that could not be fixed. Now, sometimes this is really simple. You're having a bad day. Nothing life-altering, nothing earth-shattering. You're just having a bad day. And you come home and you tell your partner or your friend about your bad day and what you really want is simply to be heard. You want to vent. You want them to listen. 
You want them to agree that Gary in accounting is the worst person in the world. You just want to be heard, to be validated, to be understood. And instead, you're met with, well, did you tell Gary that the invoice had the wrong date on it? Maybe you need to forward that email to him or whatever. I don't know this kind of language, (laughs) right? So now your spouse or your friend, whoever said that to you, they mean well. They see you struggling. They see you angry or frustrated or whatever it is. And they have an idea that they think is going to make the situation better which in turn might make you feel better. So they lead with that idea on how to fix the situation. It seems like a loving thing to do, right? But you weren't asking them to fix the problem, were you? You don't need for them to fix the problem for you, and so why do they assume that you do? Well, it's easier for most of us to try to find a solution that will get somebody out of a difficult emotion instead of forcing ourselves to sit in that emotion with them. We've all done it. We've all done it. So I have an autoimmune disease called sarcoidosis, and some people with this disease never need any treatment at all, and some people like me need quite a bit of treatment, and other people have it way much, way worse than I do. But I'm in an, an online group of people who are other SARC patients, and do you know what is regularly said to sarcoidosis patients? At least it's not cancer. What an odd thing to say to somebody. (laughs) But it's true, people hear it all the time. I've had it said to me also. Others in the room or listening online with chronic illness can probably relate, right? We've talked about this a little bit before. We're good at rallying around somebody when they're first diagnosed with something. We're great at sending cards or bringing food for a couple of days or even a couple of weeks. But, But our society acts as if there is some kind of unspoken period of time after which people's illness or grief or pain becomes a burden. So if we can just say things like, at least it's not cancer, at least they didn't die, or really anything that starts with the phrase, at least, we convince ourselves that we are making them feel better when really it's just an incredibly dismissive way for us to feel better. Sociologist and author and speaker Brene Brown talks about this as our propensity to silver line other people's pain. In reality, it's just another way that we try to fix things that are not meant to be fixed or that cannot be fixed. Even with the best of intentions, we think that what we are saying will make the person feel better. We're really just saying it to make ourselves feel better so that we don't have to feel what they are feeling. Alicia Britt Cole is the author of the book 40 Days of Decrease, from which we got the title of our Lenten sermon series. And in that book, she writes this. Six years before I met my husband, his first wife died in a tragic car accident. The two loved God and each other and were headed back to seminary from celebrating Christmas with their families when they hit an ice-covered stretch of road. Barry explained, explained that following the accident, the greatest gift that people gave him was their supportive presence. The most hurtful offerings came from people who tried to fix Barry's pain with platitudes like, God picks his favorite flowers for his heavenly garden, or you're young, you'll remarry. Such clumsy attempts to fix someone else's pain reflect the probability that we are uncomfortable facing our own. 
And that's just it, right? When we are uncomfortable facing our own stuff, our own past, our own mortality, our own loss, our own grief, our own pain, when we are uncomfortable facing those difficult things within ourselves, we are so much more prone to try to fix those things in somebody else. So instead of listening, instead of discerning well what another person actually needs from us, we lean on our own understanding and we fix, and we manage, and we control things that are not ours to fix or manage or control. I know what's best for you. I know how to manage your work situation. I know how to mediate your damaged relationship. I know how to get you over your grief or pain. I know who you should and shouldn't be hanging out with. I know that you should quit that job, or I will cover up the mess that you made. I will bend my life around your mistakes, your addiction, your pain. I will lie for you. I will paint a pretty picture of our lives to other people so they don't know what's really going on. We jump in to fix things for so many reasons. So many reasons. We want to be the hero or the savior. We like the challenge or the thrill of fixing something that seems impossible to fix. We need to feel important or useful or special as the person who stepped in. We like other people feeling indebted to us. We're covering up the mess that somebody else made to save face for our own selves. We like playing the role of the martyr who sacrificed themselves to make somebody else's situation better. The list goes on and on. Now, don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be helpful. We are called to serve others, to to show up for others, to care for others. But it is not our calling nor our job to fix others, especially when our ultimate motivation is just to make ourselves feel better. This is where both wisdom and trust comes in. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Now, trust is something that comes very naturally to some of us and not at all easily to others of us. And frustratingly enough, the same reasons that often cause us to want to fix people are the same reasons that many of us struggle to trust. Grief or shame or trauma, there's a long list. But as I mentioned earlier, Solomon was telling his son in this text that he had already found a God to be worthy of our trust. And that the invitation is to trust God with our whole heart, not just whatever pieces of our heart are left over at the end of the day. And it's it's not a trust that's that's based on enlightenment or based on, on knowledge of any kind, necessarily. It's a childlike, unwavering trust in a God that has proven himself faithful for generations. In fact, the word that is translated trust in this particular verse is the Hebrew word that means to lie face down helpless. To lie face down helpless. Our need to fix, manage, and control everything around us comes with this kind of false sense of confidence and arrogance. It's this image that we have it all together that we know the answers to each situation as it comes, that we can handle things on our own, that we don't need help from anyone. That may be the picture of the person that this culture thinks has it all together, but scripture paints a very different picture here. 
To trust God is to humble ourselves enough to lie down helpless, face down before God. It's not the image of somebody who knows or thinks they know how to fix everything. It's the image of somebody who knows that they can't fix things on their own, but knows and trusts in a God who can. This trust is a humble one. It's a recognition that God is God and that we are not. It's not the image of somebody who knows how to fix everything. It's the image of someone who knows that they can't fix things on their own, right? It's this humble, humble trust. It acknowledges that we don't have all of the answers, that despite what the world says of us, we are not supposed to have all of the answers. It's a trust that involves surrender, of laying aside our need to maintain a certain image. It's offering over a false sense of control. When we are able to live into that kind of trust, a trust that renders us face down before the Lord, we know that God is with us, which ultimately teaches us how to be with others. When you have experienced in Jesus a God who holds you in your pain, who cries with you when you are upset, who carries you through your struggles, then you know how to do those things for other people. And you know what it is to help other people find that in Jesus. Certainly, there is great value in education and learning and growing and our knowledge of all kinds of things. And there is a great gift that comes along with being able to help, to guide, to teach, to mentor, and even to offer advice to other people. And we are not here to fix other people. You can't fix somebody's bad day and you can't fix somebody's addiction. You can't fix somebody's past. You can't fix somebody's grief. You can't fix somebody's pain. In her book, Cole talks about our tendency to want to fix even God's image. That when we see miracles happen in this world, we then expect them to happen consistently forever. As if when God does something tangible right before our eyes, we now think that we have knowledge of what God does and when and how he is going to do it forever and ever and ever, amen. And so Cole writes, I too have been bewildered by miracles big and small. With the latter, I have watched only God, miracle writing opportunities, produce beautiful books that collected dust in a forgotten warehouse. With the former, I have accompanied friends whose only God, miracle pregnancies, ended in miscarriage. She says, the church in general panics when miracles miscarry. She says, we scurry clumsily about to prop up God's sagging reputation. There must have been a problem, we offer. God must have something even better around the corner, we propose. Must he? Here is my Lenten plea for the day, she says. Let the morning mourn. Grant those who grieve the dignity to ask questions. Bestow upon the bewildered permission to not edit their honesty. Because the truth is, we know, we know how much we ourselves need to be face down before God, learning to trust with a childlike faith. 
And every time we step in to fix something for somebody else, we are denying them the opportunity to grow in their trust, to lie face down before God, and to do what only God can do in their lives. So for those of us who are struggling with wanting or trying or needing to fix and manage and control everything around us, what would it look like for us to spend this Lent trying to decrease our need to fix things? To realize, as Cole says, that such clumsy attempts to fix other people's pain probably reflects that we are uncomfortable facing our own. So it's a chance not just to decrease trying to fix, fix things, much more so. It's a chance to bring our own pain and our own selves before God with humility, learning to trust that as God heals us, he can and will use us not to fix others, but to help others lie down before Jesus themselves, before the only one who can bring true healing. Let's pray together. God, you know what a control freak I am. I am very, very familiar with the ways of uh, fixing and managing and controlling all of the things around me about my life and the lives of other people in my circle. When I fix and manage and control, I feel safe. But it's all an illusion. And so, Lord, I pray that this Lenten season, for anybody else who's listening who might be a little bit like me, who might struggle with the need to control things or to fix things. Lord, would you help us to humble ourselves before you? It's a scary place to go sometimes, not before you, but before our own pain. But help us to know, Lord, that you are there with us, that you already know it. You already know the things that hurt our hearts. You already know the things that we struggle with. We don't need to be frightened to come before you honestly, just as we are. And so, Lord, as we do that, teach us to trust more and more in you. Teach us to pause before we feel the need to fix or control the things around us. Remind us over and over and over again that you are God and that we are not, and thank God for that. We thank you, Lord, for the way that you love us, the way that you accept us, the way that you change us, the way that you heal us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.